Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 28 in our series of 2021. And today's date is Friday, August the 13th. First, I'll be talking to Hayley Hopwood, Head of Growth at Stripe Technology, which basically powers payments on the internet across the whole of Australia and globally and which onboarded tens of thousands of customers during 2020, providing them with the tech stack they needed to survive the economic aftereffects of the pandemic. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about market trends for the week. But now let's talk to Hayley Hopwood. Well, Hayley, Stripe is a payments platform. You do credit and debit cards, and you process all sorts of payments, uh, which makes it perfect for e-commerce. Tell us about yeah, I guess we're we're really a payment technology company that provides a single platform to accept payments anywhere in the world, really. So as you mentioned, we offer a, a range of, of types of payment methods, but it's actually more than that. We offer 250 payment methods in over 187 currencies around the world. So not only that, but it's, it allows businesses to choose what sort of channels that they're wanting to meet their customers in. So whether it be over the counter and in store or through a mobile device or application, or even if it is online. So I think Stripe has the ability to help businesses create that sort of unified experience, which is really important, particularly if you are going to, if you're thinking about going global or if you have gone global, it's really important to offer that sort of localized payment method of choice uh, to help with conversion. And then also, if you're in an industry where the demographic is quite young, it's really important to offer, you know, payment choice methods like a buy now, pay later or a wallet to help improve conversions as well. So we sort of look at it in the infrastructure in kind of a, a few ways. We make it easy and secure and compliant for sort of businesses to quickly move money around, whether it be globally or locally. And I think in like since COVID in the past year, 80% of Australian internet users have actually bought something from a Stripe powered business, although very few people know about it or know about Stripe. And we look at the infrastructure in two kind of ways. It's like helping businesses 
receive funds that are coming in, but also helping to send and settle funds as well. So in the last couple of years, we've seen a massive growth in marketplaces and platforms across a plethora of different industries. Payments is, can become a commodity and, and it's really important for businesses to get that fund flow right. It's critical to success. So we really sort of look and help businesses orchestrate that payout depending on businesses' requirements, which gets complicated really quickly. So I'll give you an example of like a food delivery provider, which I'm sure that you've used. So think about hungry customer orders through an app and the app or the platform sends a dual notification to both the restaurant and the driver. The order's received and then the funds are taken from that hungry customer. Now at that point, the funds hit the platform and then they're split between a restaurant and a driver. As I mentioned, we've all experienced this seamless process and it's actually quite amazing how intuitive it is and what a beautiful customer experience it is. You get food delivered to your house for a click of a button. Um, It's actually quite mind-blowing, but it's the stuff that you know is under the hood that really enables this and is really complicated and, and and payment infrastructure really plays an invisible role but an imperative one and uh you, you do it through all sorts of platforms you do it through all pay microsoft pay google pay yeah is that right we do yeah we provide a lot of the buy now pay laters as well yeah so apple google yeah as you mentioned all of the asian pays so wechat alipay yeah and we're seeing a massive uptick in those types of wallets it's obviously been affected by covid wouldn't it yes so we've the pandemic has sort of shifted the ways in which consumers interact uh, with businesses but also we've just seen a massive uptick uh, in the last 18 months and it's really you know, as we've sort of opened and closed in Australia, we've seen a new a new normal being set. You know, but if I cast my mind back to March when the when the pandemic hit, from March until June, we saw ten thousand businesses on board with Stripe, and that was just in Australia alone. Uh, so, you know, mac, you know, from that's from a sort of a macro level. You know, and if I drill down into some of those industries, like firstly, we saw a massive shift for businesses that are in perishable goods and alcohol delivery. So sort of think about high street butchers who have yeah. never had an internet presence before. It's just like, well, I need to, I need to move all of this meat. You know, how do I do that in a, in a safe COVID environment? Along with you know spikes in alcohol delivery. So kind of like the example that I said before. And then interestingly enough, I think we saw a massive spike in telehealth platforms. So the payments, the platforms, you know, really designed for that clinic environment. You go in and you have your consult and you leave. You know, COVID stopped all of that. So these platforms came to us and it's like, how do we build that payment infrastructure into a platform to help the medical practitioners actually con- collect digital funds because they're doing all of these virtual telehealth consults. So, you know, that was really interesting to watch as well. What's fascinating is, uh, in a sense, I mean, you said a lot of companies like, say, butchers, and mm-hmm. retailers or coffee shops mightn't have had an online presence they mightn't have been had a website before suddenly now they realize they need it but something like stripe shows them they can future proof their business because when we had the COVID 19 lockdown last year we didn't think that we'd be going through more lockdowns in 2021 and beyond so in a sense this is future proofing businesses isn't it yeah, it's, it's really interesting that you say that because we've done some analysis over the businesses that pivoted really quickly during the pandemic. So they've got the infrastructure, they're good to go, and they're actually now seeing how seamless it is coming to us going, 
okay, I've adapted my business and I've got all of this, you know, new revenue stream and I've actually got a whole cohort of users that I, or of customers that I never had before. How do I now explore other revenue streams? Like how do I, you know, businesses are now, if they've got the infrastructure set, how do I go global? Like what does that, what do I need to do to, to enable that? Or how do I expand my services to include a marketplace that I can incorporate like-minded products on my website to expand my consumer base that way? Or how do I embed a subscription model into what I have today to get a more level cash flow coming into the business and to get create loyalty and stickiness to my customers. So those businesses are really seeing the value of being able to, you know, expand and grow from what they've, what they had traditionally. But like in general, I think that most businesses have become switched on to the importance of having a variety of ways to engage with customers and and meet customers where they actually interact you know, millennials and Gen Ys, just they want, they're happy to speak to a bot um, and they want that one-click sort of checkout experience regardless of what they're paying for it. it it's gone beyond retail. Yeah, so it, we're, we're kind of, you know, having those conversations, particularly with sort of enterprise and large businesses. During the pandemic, you know, we've, we've experienced that they've had a lot of time to sort of think about their technical in- infrastructure and, and payments plays a massive role in that as well. So it's it's conversations around how do we engage with customers? How, how do we build in that customer choice, as you met, mentioned before, like offering multiple ways in which people want to pay, but also how do we centralise billing and sort of and bundle our services to create value? The other issue too is that, I mean, there was all sorts of predictions about the hospitality industry going down still, but, you know, it's probably here to stay and largely thanks to QR codes. I know. Who would have thought that QR codes would be back in fashion? But they are, and we've habituated towards them. Everywhere you go, you have to check in. Uh, We're moving to a cashless society. So back mid-year, it was, you know, you would see signs in in cafes saying we don't accept cash anymore. Just So we've seen this massive spike. And a good example of that is a, a client of ours called Mr Yum. So they've grown their business month on month by 46% from October to January. But like another way of looking at that is they've grown 270% from October to January. So it's just massive. People are really habituating towards the QR codes because phones can enable that. It's all been driven by mobile devices. Well, the other issue too is, I mean, from the customer's viewpoint, I mean, I used to pay everything by cash whenever I went to a restaurant or cafe I prided myself on handing over cash. I haven't gone to an ATM now for about a year. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, when you go into your car, you look for your keys. If you've got your keys, you're good to go. If you've got your wallet, yeah, maybe. But the most front of mind item that people think about is their mobile phone. Um, it's just convenient. The It's the most adopted payment method in Australia today is paying via your mobile phone. So whether that is just online, so you're just scrolling and paying for items um, in your online shopping, or whether you're using your phone as, you know, as a tap and go device. What's interesting is what this will do for e-commerce. I mean, I think what we've seen, largely because of the uh, largely because of the pandemic, is that e-commerce has become the new normal and Stripe is actually facilitating. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, we've, we've, we've seen that over the years, but it's been expedited, you know, since COVID, obviously. You know, we've seen 
you know, consumer behavior just massively being driven by mobile. You know, 78% of Australians, you know, are moving to that subscription model as well. So mobile plays a role there. So I think that, you know, we are seeing a, a new sort of trend merging from e-commerce and it's becoming sort of agnostic as well. Like a consumer wants to buy their goods how and, and when they feel comfortable. And that is by a mobile device. And I think businesses have to allow that, whether it's buy online, pick up in store, or whether it's tap and go in store with home delivery, or whether it's just purely online. I think that unified commerce really has to be enabled from the front end for consumers, but also we need to streamline that for businesses in the back end to be kind of agnostic and ease of reconciliation. Stripe has facilitated the global uptake of the payment system. So where are your customers coming from? Yeah, so I mean, all over the world, you know, in Australia, we've got a, a massive customer base, we're, we're processing, you know, billions of dollars, you know, I think for the types of clients that we see, at, you know, as I said before, we're really uh, industry agnostic. And we, you know, we service quite a range of different clients from different industries. So if I think about sort of the tech space. Uh, in Australia, we service Atlassian and Canva and Airtasker and of course Shopify. Now in the logistics space, we we service Sendal. And then for the FMCG space, we've got Good Pair Days, Vino Mofo and Who Gives a Crap. And obviously those three industries boomed during COVID given alcohol delivery and subscriptions. And then also Who Gives a Crap when we all went a little bit crazy over, you know, lack of toilet paper. So who gives a crap is a toilet paper um, yeah. delivery service. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch. And uh, Hayley, thank you very much for your time. It's been fascinating to talk to you. No, thank you. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist, Craig James. Well, Craig, what's your view for the market in the week ahead? Well, the big focus this week is on the, the job market. So we've got the, the wage price index, the main measure of wages in Australia, that's coming out on Wednesday. On Thursday, we've got the, the job market figures for, for the month of uh, July. We've also got uh, another variant of wages, the average weekly earnings. Uh, it's a little bit different to the wage price index. Basically, average weekly earnings is there to record the dollar figure of wages rather than how much you know, so wages moved in, in the last quarter. So they're probably the biggies you know, so the week on the domestic uh, calendar. If we uh, look at um, overseas, um, uh, the, the real focus is on how countries are doing at the moment, how the major con countries are doing. And um, on Monday, we've got China with retail spending, production, unemployment uh, and uh, investment. Basically, the usual monthly download in terms of data, but um, uh, certainly at the moment, uh, we want to make sure that China is continuing to do well. They are a major trading partner, major driver of the global economy. And uh, we do know that you know, some places like China and the United States that the Delta variant has been on the, uh, the rampage and uh, that could be affecting economic outcomes. Uh, we've got retail and production figures out of uh, China happening on Monday. We have that, the same uh, statistics coming out of the United States on, on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we've got the um, Federal uh, Reserve Minutes, the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, minutes of their last meeting. So we'll get to see what um, they were actually thinking about and uh, deciding. There's still this discussion about uh, tapering or winding back stimulus of uh, bond buying in, in the economy. So see how much of a, a progression that took at the, the meeting. 
there's also data in terms of housing starts. But uh, the quiet end of the week, uh, the Philly Fed index uh, and the lead indicator of the, uh, the US economy coming out on, on Thursday. Um, uh, really, in terms of the international markets, um, it's basically a, a waiting time until we get to the Jackson Hole proceedings that will be running over uh, August 26 to 28. And at that point in time, the, the Jackson Hole in the United States, uh, we're going to see a lot of the Federal Reserve members having discussions about um, where the economy uh, goes from here and uh, whether they continue the bond buying in the same sort of fashion. So that's seen as a pivotal um, a factor for the remainder of the year in terms of setting a monetary policy in terms of the United States. So really over the uh, the week, um, uh, some key figures coming out of China and the United States, uh, that Jackson Hole um, expectation or the lookout to, to that conference, yes, it will be happening over the week as well. But here domestically, it really is jobs that we're going to be talking about, you know, over the weekend. As I said, you know, it's those job figures coming out on Thursday. Well, that, that's very interesting with the jobs figures because they've been heading in one direction. But the question is, uh, how will these lockdowns be affecting it? How, I mean, you've got a lockdown in Sydney, which is going to be happening at least until August 28th, probably longer. And uh, you've got lockdowns in uh, Queensland as well. We've had lockdowns in Victoria. Uh, how will these affect the jobs figures? Well, it, it seems as though if we go back through history, we go back 12 months ago, we look at how the lockdowns, you know, sort of fared, you know, sort of 12 months ago. It really impacted hours work to a greater extent uh, and the participation rate rather than in terms of the unemployment rate. And we've had that uh, recent experience in uh, Victoria back in June. Uh, lockdowns in, in Victoria, the hours worked fell by 8.4% in the space of one month, but the jobs only lost by uh, three-tenths of one percent. And we had the strange uh, results in Victoria that while jobs fell by a bit over 9,000, 9,200 in the, in the month of June, the unemployment rate fell from 4.8% to 4.4%. So uh, if you just looked at the unemployment rate, you say everything's fine happening in Victoria. They had a lockdown and they got through it quite quite fine. But when you have a lockdown, you know, so clearly you can't work the normal hours uh, and uh, that's reflected in terms of the job figures. You may be holding on to your job, but you're not working the um, hours that you usually work. And, and that's what we're, I think we're going to find in um, uh, for the month of July in New South Wales. We'll see the same sort of situation as what we saw in terms of Victoria. So I think when we think about the job market figures on, on Thursday, uh, look at the unemployment rate. You know, that's always important. And look at the number of jobs um, Created, but also look at the participation rate and look at the number of hours worked. Uh, we've got to remember that we, starting from a pretty good base, the job market, uh, the unemployment rate for the month of June fell to 4.9%. So that's the lowest in the lowest jobless rate that we've had in 10 and a half years. So 4.9% in June. Um, and uh, certainly, if we go back a bit over a month, it was our expectations that we'd see that unemployment rate quickly falling to around about. Uh, 4% um, by the end of this year, 2021. But uh, we do know now that the Delta variant is uh, certainly running rampant across the globe. It's, uh, it's caused lockdown in terms of our economy. Uh, our view in terms of the job market figures, uh, the unemployment figures, is that um, the 4.9% at the moment could see a rise to 5.6% in the next couple of months. But we are still um, optimistic that we'll get that unemployment rate getting back down. 
And uh, the Reserve Bank uh, said that in its recent monetary policy decision that um, uh, you have these lockdowns, but the economy quickly rebounds once the lockdowns are ended. And that's the, the same sort of expectation that we have. Of course, the other thing going forward, when we think about the job market, it, uh, we want to see an end to lockdowns. And the only way that we're going to see an end to lockdowns is in, in, in increase in vaccination rates. And um, that's the hope. And that's certainly the hope from the, the Reserve Bank. It, uh, when it handed down its recent monetary policy decision, uh, kept interest rates unchanged. It didn't change the, um, the bond buying as well. Um, there was the expectation that they would have to reverse their decision to scale back you know, to the bond buying that they would have to ramp it up, provide more stimulus rather than reduce the amount of stimulus. But the Reserve Bank remains confident that we'll be able to get out of these lockdowns pretty quickly and rebound pretty quickly. In fact, what it sees is the unemployment rate by the end of next year, or by the end of 2022, that we'll get four and a quarter percent for the unemployment rate. Um, and uh, we'll have the economy over 2022 running at a four percent yes, annual rate. So certainly the Reserve Bank is not being spooked by what's happening with Delta it remains very, very positive in terms of the future. It's interesting. If it gets down to four and a quarter percent, where does that leave the Reserve Bank in terms of interest rates? Well, that's an interesting question. And really what we are dealing with is three factors that the Reserve Bank wants to see before it starts to even think about lifting interest rates. It wants to see full employment. Now, at the moment, the Reserve Bank regards full employment as somewhere around about four percent. So if you can get down to around about 4% for the jobless rate, you've got one part of the trifecta. The second part of the trifecta is getting um, the wage price index up, the, the growth of wages up to around about 3%. Now, uh, I mentioned that they were, those figures are coming out in the coming week. Uh, on Wednesday, the, the 18th of August, uh, we've got the wage price index uh, uh, coming out. Currently, it's showing for the March quarter, 0.6% rise and 1.5% annual. Now, where the Reserve Bank wants to see wages is 3% annual rather than 1.5%. So we'll, we'll be watching fairly closely in, in terms of the wage data coming out on Wednesday. But uh, that's the expectation. That's the second part of the trifecta, getting 3% wage growth. And the third part of the trifecta is getting inflation between 2 and 3% sustainably on an annual basis. Uh, so we know that inflation in the underlying sense is still a long way away from being sustainably between 2 and 3%. We've got the trim mean measure sitting at 1.6%. So you need a lower unemployment rate, you need a higher wages, you need to see a lift in the inflation rate. Then we'll start talking about um, whether we should be starting to, to lift interest rates. Now, the Reserve Bank's sticking to its view. Its view is that um, it's going to be 2024 before we see all those conditions uh, being satisfied. Our view is that it could be a little bit earlier than that in May of 2023. We're predicting that the first interest rate hike. But yeah, as we have seen you know, over the last month or so, things can change in the twinkling of an eye. And um, it really you know, sort of does get, get at the moment, you know, so the focus is on getting more and more people vaccinated so we don't see these lockdowns and we can get back to some degree of normalcy. Well, that, that's interesting because, I mean, the, the other issue, of course, with lockdowns is it affects business confidence. And, of course, if businesses lose confidence, they're less likely to put on people, which will affect unemployment figures. Well, that's right. You know, so it's the knock-on effects, isn't it? So um, uh, the longer the, the lockdowns uh, continue, uh, the, the less chance that businesses have to be able to say, well, we, we can retain the same amount of workers. 
Um, and if they're not confident going forward that um, we're going to see further lockdowns and um, uh, we'll be able to get out of the situation through vaccination rates, they won't continue hiring. So there's two aspects there, whether you reduce the amount of uh, workers that you've got on your payroll um, and whether you re reduce hiring going forward as well. Now, so far, uh, businesses have been fairly you know, sort of upbeat, you know, so they've maintained you know, sort of jobs. And that's because the federal and state governments and uh, together with the Reserve Bank have provided significant amount of stimulus to be able to get through, through the, these um, uh, Delta variant up surges and you know, sort of these, um, this in, uh, situation with um, the virus more, more generally. So have to wait and see whether you know, sort of businesses do hold on to their confidence. But what we do know is that those workers that have been affected by the lockdown they have been given yes the dollars that they need to be able to go go for, and uh, crossing all fingers that when the uh, lockdowns end, it will be you know, so back to business as usual. And we've got to remember the other thing yes you know, so that's happening at the moment is the borders are shut, and what we're seeing is a lot of businesses are finding it hard to attract and retain you know, the staff in this sort of environment because there's only so many skilled positions around the place. Um, and you want to hold on to your staff very, very carefully. Now, when the job, uh, sorry, the border opens, that will be a whole different kettle of fish, but um, that seems a little way off from here. Well, Craig, that's all fascinating, and uh, we're sure we'll be watching it very closely, and thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Germany's BioNTech, with partner Pfizer of the pioneering mRNA jab, raised its vaccine revenue forecast for 2021 in its latest earnings report. US firm Pfizer and BioNTech got a head start over rivals as they were the first in the Western world to announce positive results from clinical trials of vaccine last year. Pfizer has earned more than its competitors, raking in US $10.8 billion, that's Aussie $14.6 billion, in the first half of this year. The US company has raised its outlook for 2021, expecting to make US $33.5 billion, that's Aussie $45 billion, in sales for the full year. BioNTech reported revenues of 7.3 billion euros, that's 11.6 billion Australian dollars, in the first half. Unlike its larger partners, the company's only product on sale is a coronavirus vaccine. BioNTech expects vaccine revenues to reach 15.9 billion euros, that's Aussie $25.4 billion, for the full year, up from a previous estimate of 9.8 billion euros, that's Aussie $15.6 billion. The Moderna vaccine, which is soon to be available in Australia, reported turnover of US $5.9 billion, that's $9.4 billion Aussie, in the first six months of the year. It expects to make US $20 billion, that's $31.9 billion Aussie, in revenues thanks to the vaccine this year. AstraZeneca, who did not provide a full-year estimate, generated US $1.2 billion, that's Aussie $1.6 billion, in sales in the first six months of the year. The Johnson Johnson vaccine reported US $264 million, that's Aussie $358 million, in sales and expects to make US $2.5 billion, that's Aussie $3.3 billion for the full year. And Australia's unravelling zero COVID strategy will cost its economy more than $1 billion every week of lockdown, as analysts warn restrictions in some of its states could last until October. Forecasters warn that renewed lockdowns and the glacial pace of its vaccination program will trigger a sharp drop in GDP in the third quarter as Delta virus cases threaten to explode. 
Economists at UBS said the current lockdown in New South Wales will cause a $1 billion hit a week and cost the Australian economy a cumulative $25 billion. If the most populous state is in lockdown for all of the third quarter and restrictions are imposed elsewhere, national GDP will fall by 2.5% compared with the previous three months, the bank warned. Such a decline would not be as damaging as a record 7% slump suffered in the second quarter of 2020, but would still be far larger than pre-COVID contraction. George Tharanow, a UBS economist, warned the looming, very large economic cost of the lockdown is already evident in recent retail sales and payroll data. He estimated up to $1.5 billion of government support every week will be needed to prop up the economy. And the mood among businesses and consumers has turned negative for the first time since 2020, new surveys reveal, as confidence collapses under the weight of the Delta lockdowns along Australia's east coast. NAB's monthly business survey counted more pessimistic than optimistic firms in July, after both conditions and confidence deteriorated sharply and turned corporate sentiment negative for the first time in about a year, although still not close to the depths recorded during the initial phase of the pandemic in early 2020. The bank's corporate sentiment index plunged by 19 points to minus 8 points and was now well below average, NNOB said, where a reading of zero signals a balance of optimists and pessimists. There was a very large drop in confidence among New South Wales firms, where the corporate move is now the worst in the country, at about minus 20 points. Sentiment also turned negative in Queensland, albeit only slightly. The gauge of business operating conditions fell 14 points to 11 points, but stayed above the historical average of 6 points. Conditions for Australian firms deteriorate across the mainland with a particularly large fall of 31 points to 2 points in New South Wales. South Australia also experienced an outsized fall, the report showed. NAB Chief Economist Alan Noster said, Overall, the survey shows that the strength in the business sector seen in the early to mid-2021 has faded on the back of fresh disruptions in the economy, but has not yet deteriorated to the lows seen in early 2020. And enduring COVID-19 outbreaks across the country have pushed consumer confidence into pessimistic territory for the first time since November, according to a weekly gauge compiled by ANZ and Roy Morgan. The nationwide level slipped 3.1% to 98.6 points, falling below the neutral 100-point mark for the first time in eight months, despite signs of optimism beginning to show in hard-hit Sydney. And telco giant Telstra is set to scoop up software company Medical Director after reaching a deal with private equity firm Affinity Equity Partners. Telstra Health has acquired GP clinical and practice management software company Medical Director for $350 million dollars. Medical Director provides software as a service and innovation to the healthcare industry, including across electronic health records, patient and practice management, billing and scheduling, care coordination, medicines information and clinical content. And employers will be able to ask their staff if they have been vaccinated against COVID-19 so they can guard against infections in the workplace under federal guidance finalised on Tuesday morning. The federal government is telling companies they have the right to ask workers for their vaccination status, despite growing debate about the privacy of the information. But the approach does not mean vaccinations can be mandated across the community, as Prime Minister Scott Morrison warns against mandating by stealth through any change in the law to make the jabs compulsory. The new guidance to business means employers will be able to act on the information if workers tell them they have not been vaccinated and therefore might pose a risk to customers and fellow staff. One response would be to move workers away from duties where they're facing customers or interacting with others, reducing the risk that those who are not vaccinated could spread COVID-19 in the workplace. Business leaders are frustrated, however, at Mr Morrison's decision to avoid any changes to legislation or regulation to provide a greater authority and clarity to employers who want to strongly encourage workers to get vaccinated, even if it is not compulsory. That is why employer organisation AI Group wants the federal government to mandate COVID-19 vaccinations as part of public health orders to avoid a legal mess. 
AO Group boss Innes Willock said employers and unions wanted clear guidance and the failure of the Morrison government to mandate jabs or indemnify employers will create a lawyer's picnic. And fruit and vegetable giant SPC has refused to budge on its requirement that all its staff be vaccinated, despite union claims that it is punitive and unrealistic. But one expert says the increased availability of vaccines may now mean such a mandate is legal. The food manufacturer was locked in meetings for much of Monday afternoon with the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, but did not retreat on its policy. The first for an Australian employer, that all staff be vaccinated in less than three months. Instead, the company took heart at Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews' statement on Monday that vaccination is our only way out of this pandemic and flagged setting up a pop-up clinic to assist workers to get vaccinated by the end of October. The AMWU is angry that workers were not consulted over the requirement and, and argues it is unlikely all workers will be vaccinated in time due to what it claims is workers' difficulty in accessing vaccines. And Optus are in discussions about their sponsorship with Adelaide over the Crows' handling of the Taylor Walker racism storm. The telco giant, who signed a four-year deal in early 2019 to become a principal partner of the club, on Tuesday issued a brief statement when asked about Walker's racial slur of North Adelaide player Rubby Young, for which the former captain was suspended for six months and fined $20,000. Optus stopped short of endorsing the manner in which the incident had been treated. As a diverse organisation, Optus does not condone racism or any form of discrimination. We're consulting with the Adelaide Crows in regards to the management of this issue, said Optus Head of Marketing Mel Hopkins. Optus's name appears on the back of the Crows' jumper. And the Commonwealth Bank's governance team is chronically under-resourced, has huge attrition rates and is swamped by excessive workloads, but the bank has done little, if anything, to address the issue, according to the woman in charge of the group. CBA Group Governance Executive General Manager Cara Nichols is suing the bank for allegedly seeking to fire her last week in response to whistleblower complaints she made to senior officers and chairman Catherine Livingston about the bank's failure to respond to repeated warnings on understaffing and workers' safety. And New South Wales Police's Financial Crime Squad is pushing ahead with a probe into foreign group founder Bill Pappas as Westpac and two other banks attempt to claw back funds lost in a $400 million alleged fraud. New South Wales Police referred the inquiries to the Financial Crime Squad in late July after authorities were earlier alerted to allegations of fraudulent activity linked to equipment. The Financial Crimes Union is understood to be stepping up its inquiries into Mr Pappas' affairs and the wide-ranging allegations by the three banks. Westpac has reported its allegations to New South Wales, the Banking Regulator and the Australian Securities Investments Commission as it pursues forum and Mr Pappas in the federal court. The bank's court action, lodged in late June, also named forum director Vincenzo Tessorario as respondent. He and Mr Pappas' assets have been frozen. Last week's affidavits by Mr Pappas and Mr Tessorario were made public, revealing an empire of fast cars, houses and business interests spanning the globe. Mr Pappas, a senior soccer identity, was known to drive a Bentley and two Porsches, and the Bentley was often parked at Forum's head office in North Sydney. And NAB will acquire Citigroup's consumer business for $1.2 billion in a deal that will double the size of its credit card business and take up the fight with disruptors such as Afterpay. The bank will take ownership of a $12.2 billion loan book and $9 billion in deposits under the deal announced on Monday afternoon, which included a cash premium of $250 million. NAB CEO Ross McEwen said Citi's 1 million credit card customers were especially attractive for the bank and described the fundamentals of the credit card market as strong in the face of competition from increasingly popular buy-now-pay-later offering. Mr McEwen said there was still plenty of life left in plastic, citing the 16 million credit cards in the hands of Australian customers, racking up $27 billion worth of transactions every month. And Australia's consumer watchdog, 
the actual C is taking Telstra, Optus and TPG to court, alleging they misled hundreds of thousands of consumers over NBN speeds. The ACCC alleges the telcos made false or misleading representations in their promotions of NBN plans. The watchdog says the companies will be taken to court for making alleged false or misleading representations in their promotions of some 50 megabits per second and 100 megabits per second NBN plans in breach of the Australian consumer laws. It is also alleged Telstra, Optus and TPG wrongly accepted payments from certain customers for NBN plans when they were not provided with the promised speeds. It said the telcos promised customers they would test line speeds and offer remedies, such as cheaper plans with refunds, but have failed to do so. If it succeeds, the companies could each be forced to pay millions of dollars in fines. And an expert group examining the cause of a $1.4 billion cost overrun at a giant copper mine run by Rio Tinto in Mongolia said in a report that it was caused by mismanagement and not the unfavourable rock conditions blamed by the world's second largest miner. The 157-page report was commissioned by the owners of the Oyu Tolgoi mine, Turco's Hill Resources and a Mongolian state-owned company, to examine why construction of an underground pit was delayed and costs rose. Separately, the US Securities and Exchange Commission and British regulators are looking into whether Rio Tinto, which has a majority stake in Turquoise Hill, should have detailed problems at the Oyu Tolgoi underground mine to investors sooner. The report spoke of an unhealthy culture across the side of the, of the underground mine at Oyu Tolgoi, which attributed to a lack of coordination between teams. People were working in silos with one group blaming the other for any failings, it said. And it's profit reporting season. Commonwealth Bank's net profit attributable to equity holders climbed 6% to $2.2 billion, on revenue up 2% to $24.4 billion. On a continuing operations basis, cash net profit climbed 19.8% to $8.66 billion, and statutory net profit climbed 19.7% to $8.84 billion. And IAG has reported a $427 million loss for the 2021 financial year. Arena REIT statutory net profit climbed 116%, to $165.4 million, while net operating profit rose 18.5% to $51.9 million. Professional services and accounting group Kelly Partners has reported a financial 2021 net profit up 15.1% to $4.6 million on sales up 7.5% to $48.9 million. Rail freight business Horizon has reported a financial 2021 underlying net profit up 1% to $533 million on sales down 1.5% to $3.06 billion. Transurban revenue from continuing operations fell 9% to $2.89 billion. It reported a $287 million loss from continuing operations. Real Estate Investment Trust, Charter Hall Long Whale REIT's $159 million in operating earnings is up 30.5% on the prior period. Challenger Financial Group posted a $592 million net profit after tax for the year ending in June, undoing the $416 million loss in the prior pandemic scarred period. James Hardy's profit has soared during the first quarter of the 2022 financial year, with sales increasing across the board. Net sales from ordinary activities rose 35% to a record US $843.3 million, while net profits soared 1,191% to US $121.4 million. Internet Connectivity's Megaport has widened its financial 2021 net loss to $55 million, on revenue up 35% to $78.3 million. Reckon's normalised EBITDA is up 7.1% to $16.7 million. Mineral resources underlying net profits soared 230% to $1.5 $1.1 billion, while statutory net profit climbed 26% to $1.27 billion. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Tommy Huppert, the CEO of medical marijuana company Canatric. 
and I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the profit reporting season and the state of the economy. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 